Good morning. We are way better than the 9 o'clock crowd. And maybe that's because it's the 9 o'clock crowd. We shall already seem to have a little bit more life going. Go ahead and open with me to uh, the, your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's hard to believe. We have, uh, I think this is about 13 weeks into our series. We started in Genesis with creation. We've made our way through uh, the ups and downs of the story thus far. And now we have come uh, to 2 Samuel and kingship. And we're going to be looking at that further today. But we're obviously driving forward. We're, we're coming home. We're going to be landing the plane um, in the very near future. And of course, Easter is coming in just a couple of weeks and very excited about worshiping with uh, you all gathering for that. But as, we, as you turn in your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I have, a, I have a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word king or monarchy? What comes to your mind when you, when you think about kingship? Um, and you know, obviously, take your context, take our context into consideration. We, we don't live in a monarchy. We don't have a king. We live in a democratic republic, which is a far cry from a monarchy. But now, what if I ask the same question to someone living in England? If I ask the same question to someone living in England, they have a monarchy, don't they? They have a queen, but they have all, and they have all the, the kind of the pomp and the circumstance and the frou-frou weddings and the baby ha-has and all that that goes with the, the, the kingship and the royalty that they have over in, uh, in England. I, I wasn't the guy who got into all of that, but I know it was, it was a big deal. Um, but theirs is, they have the queen, but there's a constitutional monarchy. So ultimately, the, the queen of England has little to no real power um, in the big scheme of things. But based upon their context, if I'm going to ask them this question, their understanding of monarchy is going to be different than our understanding of monarchy. But what if I ask the same question to someone living in Saudi Arabia? A country where there is an absolute monarch, an absolute king, who has all final say when it comes to the law of the land. Do you see how the context, our context, our understanding can shape understanding? How each person's context can cause them to understand kingship differently? You ask somebody in, in the United States, they're going to have one thought. You're going to have somebody in England, they're going to have a thought. You're going to ask somebody in Saudi Arabia, they're going to have a thought, all based upon their context. And when we approach a passage like we have today that's talking about kingship, if we don't have a right understanding of, of kingship, then we're going to miss the point. And better yet, if we don't have a biblical understanding of kingship, then we're going to, to miss the point. We, we don't under, really understand what's being communicated. Because our understanding of kingship at least within our cultural context, is a far cry also from what we see in Scripture. So, see, what we have to understand when we're looking at our culture is that we're kind of a lot like the period and the culture of the judges. When we look at our culture, where we look at our place where there is no king, and everyone is doing what is right in his or her own eyes. Now, when I say that there is no king, neither the author of Judges nor myself mean that there is literally no king. There's no established monarchy in place. There, 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 there isn't a physical king that is ruling over. And there definitely is not submission to a king. 
But there is a king, and we are a part of his kingdom. And his name is Yahweh. And we cannot not be in the kingdom of God. No matter how hard we try, even if you don't believe in him, you hate him, you, you, you worship all the, the little g false gods, we can't escape being a part of the kingdom of God. And I'm not referring to universalism. I'm not referring, saying that everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be resting in God's presence. That's not what we're referring to. What we're referring to is understanding that he is the creator. And from the moment that he spoke the universe into existence, God has been reigning over his creation in complete sovereignty. He is an absolute monarch. He is the absolute king. So there has never, never not been a king. But sin has blinded the eyes of people to who God is and who we are in relation to him. Sin has blinded our eyes and hardened our hearts to to how desperate we are for a king. We are a people in desperate need of a king. And that's where we pick up today in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, the king here being David, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, all the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any, with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now what we have here is God making a a covenant with David. It's a covenant known as the Davidic covenant. It's a promise, a contract, if you will, in the same vein as the covenants that have preceded it with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And like those covenants, 
This covenant is designed and should increase our joy as believers. And yes, I'm saying it should increase our joy as believers. Why? Because the main point of each of these covenants is that God does everything he does for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Meaning we who are in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, you can know with certainty that God is for us. God is for you, not against us, not against you. If you are in Christ, God is for you. Let that sink in for a moment. Because there is nothing that will shape how we live and how we think more than than knowing that. Knowing that God, the creator of the universe, our king is for us. That he, in his perfect wisdom, is working all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This is the knowledge, the cognitive knowledge, the understanding, the belief with all of who we are. Not just the head knowledge. Yeah, check, I, I agree. No, this is the knowledge. Like I believe this that gives confidence to our anxious souls. This is the knowledge that allows us to sleep well at night because we know who's guarding the door. We know who's holding all things together. This is that knowledge. And that's the reason that we study the covenants. That's the reason we're doing this series. Beyond trying to learn and communicate the overarching story of Scripture. It's because it's in the covenants. It's in the story that we see God saying over and over again. Here's everything I'm going to do for my people. Here's everything that I'm going to do for you. All my wisdom. All my power, all my compassion, all my mercy, all my grace, all my love is being directed to you. It's being directed to you. Now come to me, you who are thirsty. Come to me who are weary. Trust in me and I will give you rest. I will be your king and you will be my people. I am a covenant-keeping God. Trust me. And before we take a closer look at the Davidic covenant, let's just take a quick look back at the four preceding covenants of which all have been paving the way to this point. Each one building upon the other. So starting with the first, God's covenant with Adam. It's really the covenant of creation that we see here. We're in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam is serving as a representative of the entire human race with eternal life promised under the condition that mankind live in perfect obedience to the law of God. Obey everything that God says. But what happened? Adam and Eve fail. They disobey God's law. They disobey the king. They do the one thing that he's commanded them not to do. And what's the result? They and the entire human race were plunged into a state of sin, death, and condemnation. There is now a curse over all of creation. But even in the midst of judgment, what do we see? We see salvation coming forth. As God, acting in his sovereign grace, issues a promise that he will provide through his offspring, through the seed of Eve, Genesis 3.15, a redeemer who will destroy the serpent and reverse the curse once and for all. And it's this promise 
which the entire storyline of Scripture is unfolding. This is the storyline of which we have been unpacking over the last couple months, which leads us to God's covenant with Noah, which is really a covenant of preservation. It's a covenant of I'm going to keep my promises no matter what. As human race is spiraling deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of depravity, God judges the world by bringing a catastrophic flood. A flood that brings about the reversal of creation. The entire world is now underwater. The entire world is now under God's judgment. With only one boat, one ark, one vessel of God's mercy and grace preserving the human race and preserving the promise of God from Genesis 3.15. Meaning the offspring of Eve will now come through Noah. But there's a difference in this covenant and all the other covenants that we're going to look at. There, There are no conditions here. There's no commands of obedience. Yes, Noah had to be obedient in building the ark. But what we need to understand is this covenant is issued after the flood where God promises to never destroy the world by flood again. And it's it's not just a covenant that he's making with Noah and his family. It's a covenant that he's making with all of creation. As we see in in Genesis 9, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. God makes a covenant here with all of creation that he will preserve his promises to the end. He is assuring his promises will come to fruition. No doubt about it. Now make no mistake about it. Sinful man will always deserve judgment. Will always deserve destruction. But God is promising here that he will not destroy the world again until the final judgment. So there's nothing anyone can do There's nothing anyone can do to keep God from fulfilling his promises. This is an unconditional promise from God. Isn't that comforting? Unconditional promise and nothing is going to stop this from happening. And thank goodness because it doesn't take long for Noah like Adam to fail. In fact, by the time we reach Genesis chapter 11, we have Genesis 3 all over again. Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. This is what we see. It's identifying that the reality that the problem wasn't destroyed with the flood. Our problem wasn't destroyed with the flood. The problem isn't just out there somewhere with this person or that person or this thing or that thing. The problem lies in every human heart. All of us are born in sin. That's our problem. We are the problem. We all, every single one of us in this room, deserve to drown in the waters of God's judgment for our disobedience to the king. That's what we deserve. But once again, what do we see here? In the midst of judgment, what's coming forth? Salvation. It leads us to God's covenant with Abraham. Where in Genesis chapter 12, God elects, he calls out a pagan named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him that through him, God will create for himself a people. And he's going to give that people a land. And then that people will be a blessing to the nations, all the peoples of the earth. They will be God's people in God's place, resting under God's kingly rule. 
And through the remainder of Genesis, we, we see this promise begin to unfold. And then that covenant leads us to God's covenant with Moses, where God's people find themselves as slaves in Egypt. But while slaves in Egypt, unable to do anything to save themselves from their condition, God delivers them through his servant Moses. God's delivering them. He brings them to Mount Sinai. Again, by his divine hand, delivering them from Egypt and slavery, helping, causing them to cross the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai. And what's he do at Mount Sinai? He gives them the law. He makes a covenant telling his people how they are supposed to live in the land that he's given them. What it looks like to be under his rule as subjects to the king. So he's laid it all out for them. And do you see the pattern that's taking place here from covenant to covenant? How each one is building upon the other? How, it, how it's not a new covenant coming along each time and nullifying the one that's before it? Each one is building as it goes. From creation, fall, preservation, cre- creating a people, giving the people a land, telling them how they are to live in the land, all leading to how they are to fulfill God's purpose of being a blessing to the nations. How they are to be a bright light to the nations. Which brings us to where we're at today. God's covenant with David. See, it's it's here in our story through the Bible, in the the chronicle of redemption, that the people without a king begin to do what? They begin to cry out for a king. We want a king. We want a king. And, And yes, God is their king, but they're not submitting to his authority. That's not what they want. What what do they want here? What do they want? They want a king with skin on. They want someone that they can directly look at and physically be in the room where they they want that type of king where so they think. They want a king like all the other nations have. They, They want Saul. Why? Because he's tall and good looking. He looks like a king. And that's the perfect requirements, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. He looks like a king, so he must be a king. And they're all sitting here whining and complaining. All the other nations have a tall and good-looking king. We want a tall and good-looking king. Children. It's like just blatant, like brilliance right here. Like, yay, no. And while Saul reigns for 40 years, and there's some blessings in there, ultimately he's a failure as a king. And not the king God chooses to establish his covenant. Not the one God chooses to establish his everlasting kingdom. Who does God choose? God chooses unlikely David. The great grandson of Moabite Ruth that we looked at last week. The youngest son, a shepherd boy working in the pasture. The unlikeliest of choices, humanly speaking. And God chooses him that he should be prince of God's people, Israel. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man of God's choosing, God's choice to be king. But he was by no means perfect. David had an extreme amount of faults. Probably his best known of his faults is the affair with a married woman, a woman named Bathsheba. And if that wasn't bad enough, after getting her pregnant, he sends her husband to the front lines of battle to have have him killed. And if you want to remember that sad little story through a sick little song, I got one for you. 
Uriah. I'm taking your wife. I'm taking your life, Uriah. It's a sick little song. It's worse than my singing of the song. I can't sing at all. No, no brainer, right? But the point, case in point, David was a severely flawed man. But David was God's chosen man. And God was with him, as we see in verse 9. Reminding us, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut, cut off all your enemies from before you. All of them. So yes, David slew Goliath. But who made it possible? God did. Yes, David was mighty in battle and victories in battle. But who made that possible? God did. So like Abraham and Noah and Moses and Ruth and Boaz and all those who have come before him, David isn't the hero of the story. Who is? God is. God is the hero of the story. It's God who chooses David. And it's God who grants him the victories. So what's David's role in all this? Just to grab a bucket of popcorn and sit back and enjoy? Wow, God, this is awesome. No. What's he do? He, he has to, like Abraham and Moses before him, David has a very important responsibility. Before he went out to fight Goliath, what did he have to do? He had to grab the sling and the rock. He had to obey God. He had to step out and pop. He had to go into battle. He had to lead according to God's plan. He had to obey God. He had to obey the king. He is to rule God's people while he himself submits to the sovereign authority of God. He's under the authority of God. Like Adam, he is to be a representative of God on earth. And like Adam, he's a failure, but he's still God's man here. Now remember how God told Abraham to go uh, into the foreign land? What did Abraham have to do to get that land? What did he have to do to receive the land? He had to go. He had to go to the land. He had to obey and he had to go. But God is the one who makes him a great name. God is the one who gives him people a place. God is the one who gives them a land, makes of him a people. So what does David have to do here? He has to obey God's word. He has to obey God's law. And like Abraham, God, God promises David in the second part of verse 9, and I will make him for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, hold on to that last sentence for a moment. And think back with me, if you will, to the first seven verses of, of, of Samuel chapter 7 here that we looked at. Where David talked about making God a house. He's like, I'm going to build you a house, God. And, and nothing wrong with those intentions. Nothing wrong with those desires. He's going to make him a permanent dwelling place. It's a house that will be built later and it will be called a temple. Nothing wrong with this. But right here, look what God is saying here. He's like, hold up. Not so fast, David. My house, it'll come. It will happen but I'm going to make you a house first. 
I want to make you a house first. God's telling David, I will make you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And if you know how this story continues and you know how it unfolds, the story of Israel going forth, you know that they are God's people. They are in God's place, at least for a time. And and yes, they have roughly 80 years, relatively speaking, of, of rest, at least in comparison to what they've experienced before as they're under David and Solomon. But this rest won't last long. This rest is not going to last long. And while, while we're going back and looking at it more next week, the, the, this kingdom right now that's united, it's going to be divided. It's going to be divided north and it's going to be divided south. And then after that, they're going to be taken captive. They're going to be exiled from the land completely. And that house, that temple that's going to be built, it's also going to be destroyed. So then we're left and asking what are we to make of these promises? What are we to make of the forever promises that are here? What happens here? Well, here's where we need to focus our attention on two main parts of the Davidic covenant. One, God promises to establish David's house forever. Look with me at verse 12 again. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So what we have is God promising to establish his kingdom through who? Through the offspring of David. But who is this offspring? And the initial and obvious answer is that it's, it's Solomon. It's David's son. as He will succeed David as king. And Solomon will be the the wisest and wealthiest man to ever live. Things in Israel will be as close to Eden-like as they have ever been since the fall in Genesis 3. This will be a glimpse, just a glimpse, of God's people living in God's place, resting under God's rule through a divinely appointed mediator. Then in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And Solomon is the one who eventually builds the temple. Solomon is the one that God uses to eventually build an earthly house, an earthly dwelling. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you notice the word forever here? Three times the word forever appears. With emphasis here, it's a promise that no matter what, this throne is not going to end. It will not be removed from the line of Judah. So no wonder this covenant offers such hope to the people of Israel. It's a promise that God's saying it will happen. It's not going to be removed from the line of Judah. Because when God promises to do something forever, as he's doing here, it's a promise affecting all of eternity. It's not just a promise affecting this person and that person. It's a promise affecting all of eternity. See, when when Saul failed as king, what happened? What did God do? He removed him as king. He said, you're out, you're done. But no matter, watch this, no matter how bad 
David or Solomon or any of the future kings in this genealogical line fail, the throne will not depart from the line of Judah. It's not happening. Someone from this family tree will always sit on the throne. Which again bodes the question, what about the exile? What, a, what happens here? What about now, the here and now? How is this taking place? How is this fulfilled? How is and are these forever promises fulfilled? Which leads us to the second part, second main point of this covenant. God promises an intimate relationship between David's offspring and himself. Look again at verses 14 and 15. And notice the intimate language that we see here. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That should draw our attention immediately to Jesus, the son of God. He must be talking about Jesus, right? But now look what follows. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of man. That's clearly not Jesus. Because Jesus was sinless. So what are we to make of this? Well, in one sense, it's still talking about David and Solomon and that genealogical line. But in another sense, it's pointing us forward. It's pointing us forward as we see in verse 15 where he says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. It's assuring us that someone from this family tree will fulfill the covenantal promise. And it's letting us know that this covenant will not be fulfilled by the Father alone. Did you hear that? This covenant will not be fulfilled by the Father alone. This isn't like the covenant with Noah here. This covenant has conditions attached to it. This covenant requires a perfectly faithful son, a king who will obey everything in God's law perfectly. So then what are we to make of this faithful son? Because David's not the answer and Solomon's not the answer. And if we look through the rest of the kings, they're not the answer. Who is it? This is the hope. This is the hope held out through the scriptures by the prophets. This is the hope, this is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are promising God will do. As we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a guarantee that Yahweh is going to do this. It's a promise that there will be another David. There will be a true and better David who will come and perfectly obey the law. A king who will come as an answer to the long-awaited promise of Genesis 3.15. And this is how the story of Scripture unfolds. This is what we've been tracking along through the last few months. This is what we see, each covenant progressively coming along, revealing and telling us more and more about the story. Each covenant building upon the other, teaching us who God is and what he expects of his people. He's holy. We're sinful. He demands perfect obedience. We can't do it. So now what? 
Each covenant, each covenant anticipating the coming of the perfect, obedient son who will not fail in his role as the image bearer of God. He will not fail like Adam. He will not fail like David. He will not fail like those who have come before. Who is this? It's all scripture is pointing us to Jesus. Every single bit of it, it's pointing us to Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited serpent crusher. Jesus is the ark of mercy. Jesus is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is the one whose kingly reign will never end. Why? Because he is the perfectly obedient son who obeyed the law to perfection. Because he lived the life that Adam and Noah and and Abraham and Moses and David and all the kings and all of us failed and cannot live and could not live and will not live. And then in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, our king became our priest. Our king became our priest. Offering himself up as our sacrifice to redeem us from the greatest enemies that we will ever know. Sin and death to give us a hope and a future and a rest that never ends a hope and a future and a rest that is found in his place under his rule and under his reign so how further does this apply to us today if that's not enough of understanding who God is and who we are how does this apply Two things as we close. One, all people are under the authority of King Jesus. All people are under the authority of King Jesus. Whether it's recognized or not, we are all under the authority of King Jesus. We are to submit ourselves to the son of David, who right now is ruling and reigning over all of creation. A creation he he himself is holding together by the word of his power. A creation that was created through him and for him. A creation that he is reigning over until he returns to put every enemy under his foot. A day when Satan will be crushed and sin and death will be no more. And every person, every person who has not, Every person who has not trusted in him with obedient faith will be judged rightly for their sin. They will receive God's just judgment. So if you have not yet bowed your knee to King Jesus, if you have not yet received him as your greatest treasure, your greatest joy, make God's covenant with David a covenant with you. As we heard from Isaiah 55 earlier in the service, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Incline your ear and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, trust in him so that your soul may live. Trust in him. Jesus is saying to you this morning, if you will come to me, if you will come to me offering nothing but faith, empty-handed and hungry, I will give you rest. I will quench your thirst. I will feed your stomachs. I will never let you go. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm a king who loves you. I'm faithful to my promises.
2. All people must hear of the salvation found in King Jesus. All people must hear of the salvation found in King Jesus. Because how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? They can't. Our mission as the church, local churches and church universal, our mission as the church is to announce the good news of Jesus to, to people of every neighborhood and every nation. This is our command. We are to spend our lives making the gospel known from Charlestown to Cape Town. This is our command. We are to give our lives as royal subjects for the purpose of making disciples of all nations. Why? So that peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation and language can have the opportunity to hear. Do we understand that there are people out there still today who have never, ever heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Never. Have no access to the gospel. It's a foreign concept to us. They have our Coke products. They just don't have the gospel. They don't. They need to hear. They need to hear so they can can be able to have the opportunity to believe so they can possess the joy. <laughs> Brothers, this is the joy. Do you understand what the joy of knowing Christ is? And some of you are like, not in his like, yes, I know. <laughs> it's an unspeakable joy of knowing Christ, knowing the King, of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We want them to hear of this good news. We want them to know this good news. We want them to receive this good news. We are to be heralds of the king. We are to be heralds of the king, proclaimers of the gospel to to people from every walk of life. And yes, that means it's going to make us uncomfortable at times. Maybe a lot of times. We're to set forth God's standard of perfection, of holiness, Letting them see that they are walking in rebellion towards God. They are people without a king doing what is right in their own eyes. And as such, they are a people under divine judgment. People need to hear this. They need to recognize this about themselves. That they're, they're slaves in Egypt and there's nothing they can do to save themselves. They're dead in their trespasses and their sins. There's nothing they can do to bring themselves to life in Christ. They're there. But we don't leave them there. We don't leave them there. We don't leave them with a message of judgment. We take them to a message of hope. We take them to a message of joy because God does not leave his people without hope. God does not leave his people without joy. And as heralds of the gospel, we get to share this hope. We get to share this good news. We get to share this joy that right now, in this very moment, Jesus is offering salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Everyone who is willing to submit to his rule and to his reign and to live under his rule and his reign. But they have to hear They have to hear and they have to be invited to come. They have to be invited to come. And that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to ask you to come to Jesus.
I'm going to ask you to follow him in believer's baptism. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come to him today. Do not wait. Come, you who are thirsty. Come, you of little faith. Come, you who are hungry. Come to Jesus and he will save you. He will save you from your sin. He will save you from the judgment you deserve. And if you have come to faith in Christ, maybe it's been in the last few months, and maybe you're thinking, I don't even know what's happened to me. I was once thinking this way and doing this and that and thinking all this. Now my desires are different. You don't have to have an exact day, an exact hour when you came to faith in Christ. You just know that something's changed. If that's you, share it. Let's talk about it. But then also, maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years. Jesus has been your king for years, but you've never submitted, you've never committed to following after and experiencing believer's baptism. I'm going to challenge you to do that today. Obey your king in proclaiming your allegiance publicly through believer's baptism. But the first thing he commands of his followers, obey. Command, go likewise and be baptized. Do this, be baptized. Proclaiming your allegiance to the king. Let the proclamation of the gospel ring forth through the baptismal waters as you tell the world you are a follower of King Jesus. That once you were dead in your sins, but now you are alive in Christ. This is, this is my, my call today to you. This is God's call to you today. Repent and believe in your sins. And we're not ones, we don't have like a formal kind of invitation where you're going to walk the aisle, but you don't need one to come to faith in Christ. Right now, where you're at, just repent and believe. Call on him as Lord and Savior, and he will save you. If you, and I challenge you to talk to, to someone, maybe it's a small group leader in the room, maybe it's one of our elders, maybe it's me, maybe it's, it's if you're a youth, Zach or Rachel, to talk to somebody, find somebody. But you don't even have to do that today, though I challenge you to, <laughs> I want you to. You can grab the, the little uh, tear off of the, the handouts that you got. You can write in there, hey, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about what it means to be baptized. You can drop it in that little black box as you're walking out today. Leave your contact information on it. We'll be happy to get with you in just a, in a comfortable, quiet setting where we'll be able to answer some of your questions and talk through things. Maybe you don't understand why baptism is so important. Let us help sit down and explain that to you. Maybe you want to send me a message over Facebook or Twitter or text message. We just want to come up after the service and talk. We'll find somebody who can help walk through these things with you. But my challenge today is come. Be obedient to the king. Submit to him today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, I'm praying for those who have never received you as, Jesus, as Lord and Savior that today will be the day of salvation. We don't have to have every answer figured out. Every question 
Lord, help him just to have faith. Lord, even to pray, Lord, help me with my belief, unbelief. Lord, for those who claim to be followers of Christ and have never walked in obedience to baptism, Lord, I pray that they will submit to their king faithfully and proclaim to the world that they are a follower of Christ. Proclaim the gospel through those baptismal waters. Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.